This is Rare Bird Radio. I'm Carol E. Miller, author of Every Moment of a Fall, a memoir of recovery from childhood trauma using the eye movement therapy EMDR. With me is Kate Basford Baker. She blogs at The Girl Who Lived. Hi, Kate. Hi. Would you um, tell us a little bit about what happened to you when you were 19 and what the impetus was for your blog? Sure. Um, When I was 19, I was driving home from a friend's house uh, late one night, and a drunk driver came around a blind corner on my side of the road and hit me head on. Uh, it was a high-speed accident, and I it forced a tow bar that was in the trunk in the front of my car um, up through the dashboard and into my skull. Um, into your all the way into your skull, like making a hole in your. Yeah, it broke the bones. It it lacerated the the dura underneath. Um, Yikes. It was yeah. It was within a quarter of an inch of going into my brain. Um, my life was saved by my seatbelt. Wow. Um, and so I had this massive head injury. Uh, I also broke my steering wheel with my chin, and so I had this injury on both both ends of my face. Um, massive head injury and uh, some brain damage. Um, Did you know that right away, or was that something that you discovered? It became clear over the in the the, the following months that my uh, I was having trouble with vocabulary. Okay, um, and it was something that doctors didn't know if it was going to to improve or not. Um, same with my vision; my optical nerve was damaged, and I had a severely uh, reduced field of vision. So I felt kind of trapped inside my own head. Um, I could see like a small circle in front of one eye, and that was about it. Um, for months, and the the field slowly widened, and I kind of got the world back. Um, but it you, took a long time. And you weren't in the hospital that whole time. No, I wasn't. I was only in the hospital for about a week. But they thought, oh, she's healing quickly, and oh, she seems fine, and let's just send her home. And and so that's what they did, and wow. and that's what I did, and slowly. Over the next few months, got got a large part of my vision back, and it took about three or four years to get my whole vocabulary back. But it did come back. It did come back. Um, well, we know that because your <laughs> blog is so amazing. You're an incredible writer. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but it was very. There was a lot of uncertainty, and it was it was it was just this incredible, violating, awful thing that happened, and set me on a very different course from the one I had been on before. Mm. Um, Yeah, well, and that um, is one of the reasons why you and I know each other and are talking, because our experience was so similar, and eerily so in a lot of ways. Um, Because I was a few years younger, I was 16, when the family, when the plane that my father was flying and my mother and sister and I were riding in crashed, mm-hmm. and I was trapped inside the in the wreckage for 
um, much longer than the others. They were taken out, although my sister was killed. And something you said about the being told, um, you know, oh, she's healing well, let's send her home. I mean, I had a very similar experience. I didn't have the injuries that you had. Um, they were very close to amputating my arm to get me out of the plane before mm -hmm. it exploded, but they didn't have to because they used the jaws of life to, to cut me out. Um, but I was only in the hospital for a few days, and then they couldn't really justify keeping me there. So right. I think... I didn't even have any scars or anything to show for what had happened, um, you know. But that whole thing of being young and, like, you bounce back quickly, mm -hmm. we both know how erroneous <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's – they didn't know – doctors didn't know when I had my accident, let alone when you had your accident, what was it, 12 years earlier – that much more happens to you on the inside than, yeah. than the outside. Yeah. That it isn't just about physical healing. Yeah. And one thing that we've certainly both come to realize and we've talked about is how um, our bodies register trauma. And that's definitely something folks weren't really taking into account right at that time. So even though, even when we're not aware of it, we hold these traumas in our bodies and they show up in um, some very unexpected ways. I just want to read something that you um, wrote in an early blog post. You've been blogging since 2011 mm -hmm. and this is from that year. Um, you wrote, there are things my body knows that it, that it is keeping from me. It could release that knowledge at any time. I'm surrounded by a minefield. Mm -hmm. And that was just so um, familiar to me. Mm -hmm. what, how did that show up for you? Uh, well, when I was... After the accident, I was very aware that my emotional life had kind of flatlined. Mm -hmm. That... I was, I was an undergraduate at the time, and I was a poet, and I, you know, emotions were kind of what I did. It was <laughs> my business. And, and after going through this, I, I stopped experiencing emotion strongly, emotions of any kind strongly. I stopped crying. I stopped having, having any, kind of, any kind of strong emotional reaction really to anything. And I, I just called it monotone. That mm -hmm. everything had kind of become monotone, uh, and I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't have a plan. I just—it was just an observation that I had that something in me has sh had shifted. You knew you were different, mm -hmm. yeah. And that was—and that was how. And I didn't have any kind of. This was in 1991. There wasn't talk about PTSD or anything like that at the time, and so I didn't have any framework to put that in. And so I didn't know what that was, what yeah. it was that had happened to me. Um, so about a year and a half later, I was 20 years old, um, and I was with my boyfriend in college and we were in his frat house one night and, <laughs> uh, and getting busy. Uh-huh. And it was, it was a fairly innocent 
moment, actually. We were having just kind of this intimate moment, and uh, and all of a sudden, things started to get hotter, and I thought, I thought I this might be my my first orgasm with another person. You know, it was it was it was right there, and I thought I could just relax and and let this happen. And so I did. And as soon as I as soon as I did that, as soon as I just gave in to the the emotion of the moment, mm-hmm. I had my first flashback Whoa. to the accident. I was immediately it was it was it was hallucination hallucination. It was real. I was transported to another place. I saw orange, which is the color of my car, and also the color of the lights outside of my car in the accident. And I heard a voice speaking to me. It was the first memory I had of this. Wow. And it was really, the, I think, my first moment of consciousness after the crash. There was a man speaking to me saying, don't worry, just sit tight. We're going to get you out. And he kept repeating, just sit tight. We're going to get you out. It's going to be okay. Uh, and it, it scared the shit out of me. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> you can say shit. I think that's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I freaked out. I started crying i i you know, you grabbed the the sides of the bed i i i freaked out and because you felt like you were there it was i happening. felt like i was there yeah and it was the first time i had remembered that that was a new memory yeah and now i know that it was probably my first moment of consciousness but at the time i didn't know what that was just all of a sudden you mean coming place. to consciousness after the crash? After the crash. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. But yeah, at the time, it just was all of a sudden, I was in a different place yeah. than I thought I was. Wow. Too bad it happened right at that <laughs> moment in, in the clinch. Yeah, I got, got derailed. For, I mean, not forever. Good. Radio audience. But, uh, <laughs> but, but for, that, for that evening, it certainly put a damper on things, and uh, my poor boyfriend was such a such a sweetheart and he knew immediately what was happening yeah and and freaked out at least as badly as I did Mm. um but at that moment I realized that this is there is a minefield out there and it's not just the bad things that I'm avoiding it's the good things too because to get to any kind of strength of emotional response I'm gonna have to go through that and I didn't realize until then that that meant any kind of emotional response. And so my reaction, I think that moment for the first time, it was a conscious as well as an unconscious reaction, was to shut down. Like you, like before it had been unconscious and now you made it, you yeah. made a conscious decision. Conscious I'm not decision. Going there. I'm not going there. I don't want to go there. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. I'm going to stay right here where I am. I'm yeah. not ready. Yeah. Interestingly, I was the same age. You, you were 20 when this happened, mm-hmm. right? So I was 20 when uh, the same thing happened to me. Um, uh, sort of. Um, I wasn't in, I wasn't during coitus, um, <laughs> but I was, um, in the hospital, I was having my wisdom teeth removed and I was under a general anesthetic. Mm-hmm. And so I was, it was after the, the surgery and I was in the recovery room coming out of the anesthesia and, um, 
I just, all of a sudden, I was crashing. I was in the plane. We were diving into the ground through the trees, um, which I wasn't even conscious for, you know, during the actual crash. But that's what was happening to me. And I just started screaming bloody murder. And I was windmilling my arms around and thrashing. I was on this gurney in the recovery room. And the, um, the nurse just showed up and, you know, gave me a shot in the butt of, an, of a sedative. And out I went again um, and woke up, you know, I don't know how much later, but probably several hours. And I was in a hospital bed and my parents were there. And it was... I really had to talk myself through um, the fact that I was, this was a different time. You know, this mm-hmm. wasn't the same hospital that I had been in after the plane crash. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it, it was clearly a re-experiencing moment. Like, this mm-hmm. stuff is inside of me. Yeah, that feeling that you're, that you're sitting on a powder keg, that, you're, that your body has knowledge of things that it is keeping from you for a reason and that you didn't make a decision about that a conscious decision about it and so you don't know who's in charge of the vaults and when this stuff's going to be fed back to you is terrifying you feel that out of control of your own brain yeah is terrifying yeah absolutely yeah i don't think i made the decision to, to ignore it, I mean, I, I did ignore it. I don't think I said, okay, myself, I'm just going to ignore <laughs> this now until a few years later when it, ha- you know, when it happened other times. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that was... So we both um, spent about 20 years ignoring or saying, okay, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go there uh, mm-hmm. before we went into therapy and did EMDR. Um, and I want to talk about that, those experiences as well. Um, but you brought up a, a point that I want to address um, about this kind of the privilege that we had of mm-hmm. having certain resources mm-hmm. um, and being able, and, and the tenacity that we both had. I mean, we both pursued advanced degrees despite I mean we haven't talked about um well you talked about this suppressing of emotion I mean we were both slogging through the valley of the shadow of death yes (laughs) For, for for real yeah um I was just getting more and more depressed and just getting closer and closer to that flatlining that I know you experienced as well um but one thing that we've talked about is something about us that was also tenacious yes uh and i i've talked about it in my blog um a friend of mine referring to herself said that she had tenacity disorder hmm. and and she's somebody that I see as, as a survivor. She had a, a horrific childhood and was in foster care, in and out of foster care for most of her life, and, and is just somebody who was going to find the opportunity, and she was going to find the positive, and she was going to make the most of her life. Mm-hmm. And, and she did that. Wow. And she's in a t- 
tiny percentage of former foster kids who has a college degree mm-hmm. now. And she's, she's got four daughters and she's, I mean, she's just this, this amazingly grateful and joyful and positive person. And you would never know from talking to her, the, the, the experiences that she had growing up. And she just said, Oh, yeah, I, just, I just call it tenacity disorder. And uh-huh. I thought I, the, the process of writing my blog has shown me that I must have that mm-hmm. too. I would never have thought of myself that way, yeah. but it clearly, yeah. It, despite the fact that, that I was, or that you and I both were traumatized and dissociated and completely out of touch with what was going on mm-hmm. inside of our bodies. Yeah. We went and put ourselves through college and through grad school and, mm-hmm. and, and achieved. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm grateful to whatever it was in me that, that made me get on with things. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know what it was. I, I know it's mis- it's it's. I feel like I have to really um, remind myself of those things because I feel not like that person at all. Right? You know, I, I, it's yes. kind of s- astonishing to me that I was able to go to grad school and do this and that because I was just constantly focused on what I wasn't doing. Yes. You know, and how how I was not capable. Um, and, you know, another fascinating thing that's, I think, connected to that, as you pointed out when we were talking earlier, is um, neither one of us had this fear of flying or driving mm-hmm. afterwards. I know it, it took you a while to be able to drive a car, right? It, Again, It did. It took... I had some vision problems, too, but, but I, I was, it was nervous, but it never occurred to me not to... Not to drive. So you didn't have that freaking out thing, like if you even like your palms sweated when you, you know, if you even thought about driving. They, you know, they they did, did they? but I did it anyway. Okay. I just, yeah, it never occurred to me not to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've, I mean, we've both heard plenty of stories about people who can't do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're just, it's just too frightening. I mean, and fear of flying is a really common thing. Yeah. Um, and I flew. Uh, commercially about four months after the the crash and I flew to Europe so it was a um, wow it was a it was a long flight too that's amazing yeah so it's it's also hopeful that um we have I mean there is this resilience Mm -hmm. but it's um curious that it shows up in different ways and at different times mm-hmm. or not at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a, uh, for better and for worse. Yeah. We had it. Yeah. We, yeah. I think our, our ability to just say, okay, not going to, not going to deal with that. Just going to move on. Yeah. Had a lot to do with it. And I don't think that's necessarily the healthiest way of, of dealing with something as major as, as what we went through, but it, it certainly helped us to get on with things that were also important to do. Yeah. So I want to talk about our experiences with EMDR, um, because I feel like for both of us, that was the time when we finally said, okay, enough avoidance already. 
or it just became life just became untenable Mm -hmm. and so it was time to do something about it Mm -hmm. I started therapy not because I thought oh I need to deal with the plane crash but because my relationship was falling apart and um my uh, partner suggested that if I got therapy, he might not leave mm. the relationship. And so that's what got me into therapy. Um, and I was not, not in any way um, you know, prepared to say, oh, well, the accident has, the plane crash has something to do with this. It, mm-hmm. So the first six months of talk therapy with my therapist, Connie, she kind of gently would bring that up every once in a while, but I shooed it away. Um, and finally, she suggested that I work with someone who she knew, who was an EMDR specialist, mm-hmm. and she didn't know much about EMDR, but she knew that it was uh, a trauma-focused treatment. Mm-hmm. So I was um, seeing her and Jan, my EMDR therapist, at the same time and um, Jan and I just focused on EMDR sessions and so we did 14 of those Um, and that's what it took for me to get from I am responsible for this plane crash I killed my little sister it was my fault to um I'm not responsible for this plane crash. I don't believe that anymore. It was not my fault. That's amazing. Yeah. So, and you had a bit of a different experience. Yes. Um, I had, I had done two shorter courses of therapy in the different times in like the decade before I finally went into EMDR. Um, and never really talked about the accident because I, I had, it had been so long that I had stopped connecting that yeah. to what was going on. Yeah. I mean, um, and I knew that I had depression and I had been, I, I was going into, to be treated for that. And I didn't think it had anything to do with the accident. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. How we just push these things away. Yeah. And it just, we because convince ourselves. Car accidents don't cause depression. Right. 15 years later. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, but my husband had been telling me from the very beginning of our relationship, I think you have PTSD from that car accident, and I think you should try EMDR. Wow. And I was just like, no, there's no way. That's, I don't have that. There's, that's something that you, something you have to earn, basically. Yeah. <laughs> PTSD or, is, an, is an earned thing. Yeah, you've got to go to war yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah, I don't have the right to claim that. And it just... I just absolutely didn't believe it. But he had done EMDR therapy um, at some point before we met and, and had found it really helpful. So I was aware of it. I just didn't think that it had anything to do with me or my situation. Yeah. And then in 2009, I gave birth to twin daughters. Um, I have spontaneous identical twins. <laughs> Otherwise known as the biggest surprise of your life. Um, <laughs> and my at, at the end of my pregnancy, I got... Preeclampsia, and was in the hospital for the last three weeks trying to trying to keep the babies in wow. um, before they were born. And I was 
I know now that I was re-traumatized by that experience at the time. I just kind of floated over all of it and didn't have much of an emotional response, but it was, it was scary and it was life-threatening. And it's something that if it had happened, you know, 50 years ago or a hundred years ago, we would not have survived. And when that, when that fact hit me after I had these two tiny little helpless babies mm. to take care of, I started having flashbacks wow. to my car accident for the first time in 20 years. Wow. Almost 20 years. Um, it, they were, they were like claustrophobia attacks. It wasn't specifically visions of a car accident. It was, I'd be just sitting, um, folding laundry and all of a sudden feel like I was falling down a well and have to throw my arms out and, and hold on to things to, to remind myself that I was sitting on the couch. Whoa. Literally. And it was just, yeah, it was so visceral and coincidentally or not, um, I don't know. So many interesting coincidences have happened in this on this journey, but yeah. at the time they were also celebrating the anniversary of the little baby that fell down the well back in the eighties. Do you remember that story? Uh-huh. And so that was on TV a lot, and that would set me off. Oh wow! Every time a, a news report would come up about her and what she's doing now, and um, they'd show these images of of the crews that were trying to get this baby out of the well, uh, that would set me off, and I just. And claustrophobia like that is is something that even I connect to my car accident mm-hmm. because of my my vision troubles in the months that followed. I, I experienced claustrophobia for the first time in my life then. And so when that started happening, I I couldn't deny anymore that there was a there was something from my accident that had carried over and that was still that was still there that I needed to address. So it wasn't just it wasn't claustrophobia from being crushed in in the car so much as the vision thing afterwards it was yeah it was being being trapped inside of my own head wow it was a claustrophobia that I couldn't escape Mm -hmm. and I didn't know for months if I would ever be able to I didn't know if I would ever it was like my my field of vision was so reduced that it was like looking through a peephole at the world that's incredible and it, it was then it was terrifying. Oh my god! Because you can't turn it off. Yeah, you know, and so and you have no peripheral vision, and that is right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's huge. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I walked around looking with my head to the side, looking out of one eye. Oh my god! And it took. It didn't take that long. Relatively, you know, looking back, it took. It took. It it began to to widen within the month, and it took. I don't know, three months maybe to, to get a, a workable field of vision hmm. back. But that's a long time when yeah. you don't know if you're ever going to be able to see yeah. again the same way. Um, so claustrophobia came back uh, yes. in that period, and that's what that was your inducement to? Yeah, I had, I had little babies. They were, it took me, it took me a while to, to <laughs> come to grips with it. But I had babies who were who were under a year old, and I thought, okay, it's time, it's time to go and deal with this because something weird is happening. And I looked up therapists in my area, in my immediate area, who I could, who had evening appointments, mm. and there was one in my town, and she was an EMDR specialist. And Bingo! So it just, yeah. Jackpot. <laughs> So it worked out. I wasn't even, I didn't even go necessarily in search of EMDR. 
I just thought, okay, I need to go and talk to somebody. Yeah. And she was an EMDR specialist uh, as an adjunct to, to talk therapy. And so it worked out perfectly. So you guys did both? We did both. Okay. Yeah. So mine took a lot longer. I didn't have, uh, I didn't have as, as vivid or as, as, as sudden um, an experience as, as you did. It was, it was definitely a slower build. Okay. But, um, but what a build. I mean, I really want you to talk about, um, what you built to, and you had the, uh, the break, what you came to that, that breakthrough, um, contrasting it to, so my, from my very first session, um, it was very visual, very visceral. Mm -hmm. Um, I, in that first session, once Jan started me early in the day of the crash and we started moving forward. And once we got to the point where I was re, um, remembering being on the ground and coming to consciousness, uh, I just was completely overwhelmed with terror. I was totally and completely terrified. Mm-hmm. Um, I started weeping. I've never sobbed like that before in my life. I just, I couldn't, I could barely breathe. I was crying so much and I couldn't stop myself from doing it. And it wow. took a lot of work, uh, took Jan a lot of work to get me to, to, um, a place where I could say, okay, that is not happening now. That's over with. Yeah. And that was in the past and it'll never come again. Um, but that was the kind of intense experience that I had with it right from the beginning. And I never wept like that again after that first, that wow. first session, which is kind of incredible. Um, but you had, you kind of built up to it. Mm-hmm. And mine was not really emotional at all. Mine was all in the body. Huh. Mine was all about uh, coming, becoming aware of what my body was holding on to. Um, and so we would we would talk about things while I had the the buzzers, mm-hmm. um, and it would always everything would always take a, a deeper and and more interesting turn than when we were talking without them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, there was definitely. There was definitely a difference, but my body, about six months into it, um, I don't even remember what we were talking about. I th- I'm sure that we were talking about the, the accident, um, that we would do the same thing, start at the scene what was your first memory and start from there and, and go. And so I'd be telling the story, and all of a sudden I noticed, and I don't know if this is something that was always happening, and this this is just the first time I was aware of it or if it was something that just started. I, I, I still don't know. Um, but she stopped me. Ellen was, was my therapist's name. Uh, she stopped me and said, what is your body feeling right now? And I automatically said nothing because that was always my answer. Just yeah. <laughs> and then, and then I stopped and went, wait a minute, hold on. And I could feel that my arms had gone numb. And it wasn't a numbness. It's not not like a lack of feeling, but almost like a like an electricity on the surface, or like that 
that feeling of um, of coldness before you get the pins and needles mm, feeling. Okay. You know? So like, like your limb is falling asleep kind of deal. Either falling asleep or waking up. Okay. That that yeah. Yeah. Um it was it's kind it's kind of like that. Okay. Um I have a more nuanced perception of what it feels like now than I did then. Mm. So that says more about what I've how much how far I've come I think. But yeah. Um but yeah my my arms felt numb. And so we stopped. And that and was the first. That was the first time. Okay. So something was happening in my body. And then slowly over the next few sessions, we, we, she would stop me every once in a while as I was telling the story and say, check in with your body. What are you feeling? And I would feel that numbness and I, was, I would feel it in different spots. And after a while, we noticed that I was feeling it at sites of injuries or I was feeling it uh, in the muscles of my legs and the the muscles of my arms um, that would be activated if I were to slam on the brakes of a car or turn the steering wheel. It was it was whoa. You know, it was a it, yeah. It was a muscle memory. It wasn't just a random thing. It yeah. was a, it was a muscle memory. It was my body saying there's there's energy here. Yeah. Um, saying holy shit. Yeah. That this, that turn the wheel, stomp the brakes. That the impulse was there and it was happening in that moment. Wow. And that my body didn't know that I wasn't still driving straight towards those headlights. Um, so your body was carrying that around, that panic, that vigilance for all that years. time. Yeah. Just this constant. Scanning for threat, scanning yeah. for threat, scanning for threat, scanning for threat, and and never it was never turned off. Yeah, from that night on the highway, and I, it's funny so it, because when I talk about this, the the word energy comes up, this this trauma energy, mm-hmm. and we live in the Bay Area, and so when you say that, it sounds you know it sounds yeah. very much like woo woo yeah. woo woo energy, um, and it's not. It, it's a I, I don't mean it in that way. I don't mean it in an abstract way. I mean it in, an, in a physiological way that my lizard brain is sending impulses to these muscles to move mm-hmm. and to flee. And that coldness that I'm feeling is that that literal physical energy kind of evaporating through my skin. Wow. Um, Back up a little bit. You said you've mentioned the lizard brain a couple of times. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, the it's the most primitive part of the brain. The uh, I never know if it's amygdala or amygdala. People say it both ways. Yeah, but I've heard amygdala, but I I just call it the lizard brain and uh-huh. skip the whole thing because uh-huh. I'm an avoider. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's it's the the part that's uh, that communicates directly with your uh, limbic system, um, your intellectual brain doesn't get involved with it at all, um, and it's it's this part that controls your instincts. And the the theory advanced by um, Peter Levine and other other researchers who have studied trauma is that the uh, the lizard brain turns on during this, during a traumatic event and then gets stuck on almost like uh, the body's camcorder. Yeah. Okay. And it's, and it, 
you are it, so it the lizard brain is what activates your fight or flight response, mm-hmm. and because it wasn't properly shut off at the the end of the event, it just stayed on forever. It just stayed on for twenty years without me knowing that it was on. So then when you got into therapy and you were doing this in a deliberate way, you with EMDR, which allows you, which allowed us to go into these places and rummage around in them um, and re-experience this stuff, this um, energy thing that was happening was kind of a, your muscles going, doing their thing, which, mm-hmm. and then a kind of release of um, that, that feeling, that cold mm-hmm. feeling was a release of some of that stored up or pent up energy. It, I, I, there's no other word for it. Really? Yeah. Like it, I don't know if you've ever experienced an adrenaline crash, like after you yeah. take a big test or have a big, yes. you know, a big nervous thing. It, and, and you can, you even feel cold sometimes yeah. when you shiver from it. It's, it's, it's that. Yeah. Um, it's the body expelling the what it doesn't need of this this electrical impulse that it has sent to your systems and I mean I guess that that until this this all started happening I I laid enough groundwork with the talk therapy that that this energy was starting to release in a different way so maybe maybe it was the first time that it started happening because I think before then, it was just cycling around in my body. Staying with inside, staying in you. Yeah. And that causes physical destruction. Yeah. Not just emotional destruction, but physical destruction in your body. So is it the same as, it is the same as just being constantly on alert, constantly stressed, mm-hmm. um, to use the, mm-hmm. the word that we're all familiar with. <laughs> yeah. Hy- hypervigilance. Um, you hear terms like that applied more to to soldiers yeah. and and even veterans when they come back that, that they're hypervigilant because they were on alert where they were. Um, PTSD it doesn't doesn't care what the event was yeah. that started that response and that hypervigilance happens no matter how you got there. Yeah, and that to me seems like an important thing to communicate to folks because I mean you and I both had this sort of denial response like oh it couldn't be that because what happened to us was not as important as or significant as going into battle or right um that sort of thing yes yeah I I think the the stigma is is on both sides you're stigmatized or you feel stigmatized if you are in the military and you have this kind of response to the stuff that you go through. And, and I certainly felt like I didn't have a, a right to, to claim this. And so I put that stigma on myself. Yeah. yeah. And it kept me from getting treatment. So, I mean, it seems like we're both kind of talking about being deserving, whether we deserve to claim you know, PTSD or whatever, mm-hmm. or the, the seriousness of our situations. Um, and that makes me think about um, another passage from your blog that I want to read. 
We don't know our reptilian brains are on high alert, that things outside of our limits of tolerance, whatever they may be, are causing us to go into life or death mode, to lash out or shut down. These don't feel like responses to anything. They feel like the kind of person you are. I'm a person who can't sustain relationships, or I'm a person who is full of rage, or I'm a person who can't fight back, or I'm a person who is overwhelmed by the simplest of things. They become the story you tell yourself about who you are, and they control you through their cheapest, ugliest weapon, shame. Such a powerful passage, and shame is just such a huge part of what we both experienced Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to, to talk some about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I found in some research um, that I did for the blog early on that um, there is a school of thought that PTSD is a shame disorder. Mm-hmm. And I... I agree with that. I don't, I don't agree with it completely. I don't think that's all it is. Um, yeah, it's a lot of things. Yeah, I, I, I've experienced, you've experienced some, you know, really visceral, physical, uh, physical aspects of PTSD. Um, but I do think that, like, like any organic mechanism, it, it has an environment where it, where it's going to thrive, and shame is that environment. Shame, you know, a person who is who is prone to shame is prime. primed for this kind of reaction to trauma in my opinion absolutely i mean that i feel like one of the biggest um revelations for me in doing emdr was going backwards we focused on the the plane crash for a considerable amount of time but Um, we also had to go back to, really for me, I had to go back to the very beginning because of the um, abuse that Mm -hmm. I suffered from my father and then from my stepfather as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Those things from very early childhood were um, indications to me that I I didn't deserve to be loved I didn't deserve to whatever I mean there there was a lot of undeserving feelings Mm -hmm. Um, but also I I I came to realize that that set me up to take the fall for everything to blame myself for the crash to blame myself for being alive when my sister was not to, you know, blame myself for any number of things and to live, just suffer under this incredible burden of, of guilt and more potently shame because shame was said to me, you know, this is who you are. You are this person who doesn't deserve to be alive, essentially, is what it boiled down to. Yep. Yeah, I, I was also shame-prone um, before my accident ever happened, um, uh, not for, for reasons as, as insidious as yours were. You had, I mean, you had a really traumatic family life as a kid, you know, that, that, I mean, 
and how could you not have have felt that way after what you had been through? And I, mine was was much more benign, but it, it had the same effect. I still ended up being this this kid who was I was a perfectionist and I was an introvert and I was kind of a control freak and and so stuff that that I wasn't able to to control felt like my fault somehow that I, I was not I wasn't handling my my business <laughs> you know or whatever that that I it, it was just it was a natural thing for me to turn to turn it on myself and I honestly I think that's it's a, a pretty female way of looking at the world it's a, you yes. know it's a stereotypical but true female um response and and I definitely had that it was ingrained in me so when this when this event happened it there was already a framework there for for it to just get neatly hung upon and um and and shame shame isolates you shame turns you inward and away from away from other people um which is exactly the environment where PTSD uh, blossoms and becomes the monster that it becomes. Yeah. Yeah, because when you are just, you know, mired in that depressed, horribly depressed place, that's exactly where you are. You're alone mm-hmm. um, and you're isolated and you're... I mean, for me, it felt like I was in a, in some kind of padded suit or something that I couldn't break myself out of. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that was very, very familiar and very confining. And I also, I find that this piece of it, this shame piece is one of the hardest things to get past. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like other things, I mean, all of this work has not been easy Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's ongoing but um, I feel like the shame thing, and and I think what you're saying about being primed for taking on certain things because of it is really um, that makes it all the more difficult to to root out. Right, and I I think too because the shame isn't something that happened to us. The shame is something that was already there. Yes, and so this big thing came along and, and our natural instinct was just to look and find the ways that we were responsible for it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so interesting when you think about it, like we had to be primed to do that by some other. Yeah. Because otherwise, why would you say, you know, why would you think that about yourself? That. Oh, and what happened to both of us was something that happened, uh, Without uh, it was completely out of our control. Right, we had absolutely nothing to do. It didn't. It didn't happen because of a bad decision that either of us made. Yeah. You know, there wasn't. There wasn't any way, any point along the way where we can point to the and say I was culpable there. Yeah, you know, this. These were both things. Not that anybody deserves their their PTSD. Not that you know. Not that <laughs> any. But there wasn't. There wasn't anything in our story that we can even look at and say, well, if I had only done that differently yeah that's how that's how insidious shame is that it it will make things up out of whole cloth if it has to that even if 
even if there isn't any kind of decision that you could have made to, to that you could find a way to blame yourself for, your brain's going to make one up anyway. Yeah. And that, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what, that's what ours did. Definitely. Well, there is so much more to talk about. Yes. That we could talk about. <laughs> um, but I think that's a good place to leave it for now. Okay. Um, I want to remind people that your blog is The Girl Who Lived. And the URL is kate-thegirlwholived. Um, and you're working on a book, right? Yes. I My goal is to turn this blog into a book. I've done a huge amount of writing over yes. the last few years <laughs> that that I'd like to, to put together into a, a, a memoir or personal experience type of book um, because I want it to be a resource for people who are going through what we've gone through and who are looking for. Yeah, and to people who are listening, just know that there's so much more. It's an amazing resource. There's so much more material that we than what we've been able to cover here, so I strongly urge you to check out this blog, Kate-The-Girl-Who-Lived. Also, strongly urge you to go to my website, which is carol-e-miller.com. You can read more about my memoir, Every Moment of a Fall, and also about EMDR if you'd like to know more about that. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you.